Hello and welcome to Nudge. I'm Phil Agnew and in this episode I'm happy to share another discussion I had with Richard Shotton. Richard is author of The Choice Factory, the best-selling book on applying behaviour science to advertising. He started his career 19 years ago working on applying behaviour science to marketing in a host of different industries. If you like keeping up to date with little insights from the world of behaviour science, I highly recommend giving Richard a follow on Twitter. His handle is at rshotton. Anyway, today we'll be talking about the power of distinction and differentiation. Most of us who have studied business or simply leafed through a business textbook would have heard about the importance of differentiation. It's the idea that having a unique offer or a unique message will help us stand out. It's one of those things most of us take at face value, but it's not just an idea or a principle. There is proven science behind it, which I'll hand over to Richard to explain. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. <laughs> there is this strange thing among psychologists. They seem to have ridiculously bizarre names. And this year, Hed Hedwig uh, von Restorff is probably, uh, probably up there with the best of them. Um, so she was a, she was a pediatrician. In the University of Berlin and in 1933 she ran, ran an experiment where she gave people long lists of facts the facts were three items so they would have let's say a z y b x d uh, f u t uh, w a x so on and so forth and then every so often she would intersperse uh, a string of numbers one seven six and then she asked people to recall uh, so after they've seen this long list of information after she asked them what bits of information they can recall and when people are given long strings of letters interspersed with the occasional number the number is much more memorable when they're given long strings of numbers with the occasional letter interspersed the letters are much more uh, memorable again this is so this is called the von Restorff effect. Essentially, we notice what is distinctive. Again, it is not a um, 
historic aberration that's no longer true. Colleague and I, um, Laura Weston this time, looked at it in 2016. And this time we gave people 16 numbers, 15 written in black, say, white and blue. And people were 30 times more likely to remember the distinctive number. And we did that again and again, sometimes with num numbers, sometimes with logos. We kept on finding whatever was distinctive was more likely to be remembered. This is a simple but significant finding. When a number or word is unique, it stands out and is 30 times more likely to be remembered. Richard explains that this stands true for logos as well. If a consumer is shown four car logos, one fast food logo, and then four more car logos, they'll be far more likely to remember that fast food logo. Now, this shouldn't surprise any of us, but it seems to go against a lot of the modern day advertising we see. Think of the types of ads you see when you're flicking through a high-end magazine. They're all very similar ads for cars, watches and perfumes. But not only are the brands that advertise in these mediums similar, the actual advertisements themselves are similar too. Pretty much all of them will show a close-up image of the product, usually next to a famous celebrity, often a white woman wearing very little clothing or a white man wearing a suit. So not only are similar brands advertising in similar places, but they're both putting out very similar ads. Richard has spent a lot of time working with large brands on their advertising, and I asked him why he thought so many brands continued to use indistinctive ads. The norm, I would say, for advertising is for particular categories for the advertising to have certain rules of thumb. They're often more likely to be similar than they are to be distinctive so you look at you know, car ads you look at the creative often follows very fixed patterns um, perfume ads uh, the extreme uh, as you say lagers following football sponsorship rather than the hundreds of other opportunities available um, I think the one that takes it to the most extreme is watch ads so next time you pick up a magazine and look at a, a, a spot of watch ad look at the time 99 times out of 100, the time shown will be a minute or two either side of 10 past 10. Now, they've taken mimicking each other to ridiculous extremes so that even now, the time on every watch ad shows pretty much the same time. So category after category, we see people mimicking each other, even though the evidence suggests you're far more likely to be noticed if you are distinctive. Now, I think you've got a couple of reasons for this. The first is maybe we underestimate the importance of just being noticed. I think because people spend so much, you know, because a marketer spending 40 hours a week thinking about their brand, they often get caught up in the minutiae of that category. You know, and let's take noticeability as assumed and end up devoting their efforts to communicating some kind of minutiae about the product from a customer perspective though where they're bombarded overwhelmed by thousands of messages a day merely being noticed is the first and biggest hurdle and everything else is academic unless that is achieved so there's a miss i think prioritization of tasks that noticeability should be seen as by far a bigger and more important task than it actually is it's worth reiterating Richard's point. Imagine you're a marketer at a major company. You'll obviously spend much more time than the average consumer thinking about your company and brand. 
You'll know the finer details of your logo, the subtle colour scheme you use, and the hours, days and weeks spent coming up with your slogan. Because of all of this, you'll notice your brand instantly, whether it's in a magazine ad or on TV or even in a radio advertisement, and you'll assume that your brand is more recognisable than its competitors. Psychologists call this the false consensus effect, the idea that we overestimate the prevalence of our own behaviours and views. But consumers don't notice your brand in the same way. They see up to 3,000 different ads and communications every day. In reality, hardly any of those ads will be noticed, let alone remembered. In fact, recent data from Lumen shows that only 9% of digital ads are looked at for even more than a second. Supermarkets are one of the few organisations that recognise the power of being distinct and they'll try to organise their store to emphasise the distinctiveness of certain products. For example, supermarkets arrange fruit and vegetables as contrasting blocks of opposing colours, such as red against green, to make sure they stand out. Think of red tomatoes next to green salad or contrasting red and green apples. Similarly, most supermarkets have learnt to make sure that that fresh fruit and brightly coloured Best Buy sign sit at the front of your store to catch your eye even if you're just walking by. The displays on the end of the aisles are similarly distinctive. We're more likely to notice them as they catch our eyes as we turn corners. If you put a non-alcoholic drink on an end of aisle, the sales of it will increase by 52 to 114%, even without any discounts. Distinctiveness works in the public sector too. The government in Sydney was struggling with overdue traffic fines. Many late payers received dozens of letters, yet didn't pay their fines, racking up more and more fines. The government was worried that this was due to the sheer lack of distinctiveness in their letter, which just looked like any other letter, a white envelope, essentially. So they trialled adding a red stamp to the top of the envelope, which read PAY NOW in all caps. This stamp alone decreased late payments by 14 to 17%, which was worth to the government $10 million and importantly saved residents $4 million in late fees. So being distinct really does help us notice the most basic things. A final example for you, in Copenhagen, a group of students used distinctness to try and reduce the littering in the city. All they did was paint bins a brighter colour and painted footpaths leading up to those bins. This tiny change increased litter going into bins by 45%. Being noticed is important, especially for brands, but which brands have actually succeeded with being distinct? I asked Richard to talk about Compare the Market, who, according to Richard, successfully differentiated their brand with distinct advertising. So that, that one, that, I think that's, that's another fascinating one for kind of the, for the two kind of parts of the, the, uh, the story. So the first one was Compare the Market, a slightly uh, underperforming, underwhelming comparison site. Uh, at the beginning of its history, at the beginning of its history, it just ran ads, just like every other person in the category where it said, you can save £150 uh, by going to compare the market. They then decided to make a complete break with the category, stop making those very dry messages, and instead introduced uh, through VCCP, Alexander the Meerkat. Uh, they took a completely different route, a kind of character-led route, an emotional route, uh, an amusing route in a very rational, dry category. And over the course of the next few months or so, they saw a a phenomenal uh, growth in their business. For those of us who haven't heard of Compare the Market or its advertisements, 
They essentially showed an animated meerkat complaining about how his site, comparethemeerkat.com, was getting unnecessary web traffic from comparethemarket.com. Now, while the joke is rather plain, the distinctiveness was startling, especially compared to their competitors who still used standard value-led messaging. The result was really impressive as well. Quote volumes, which is the amount of people asking the comparison site for new quotes, they went up by 83%, and the company achieved its 12-month awareness objective in just nine weeks, rising from the fourth-ranked site to first in terms of consideration and awareness. Nothing about the product or service changed. Those improvements were simply achieved by just the ad campaign. Compare the market was starting to stand out. They started to be noticed, and this stuck in consumers' minds. What's interesting, though, is how their competitors reacted. I'll leave that to Richard to explain. The reaction of the competitors was to think, ah, it's all about having a character. So go compare, have geo, um, uh, uh, each other one has their own version of Alexander, essentially. Yet the real, I think, successful point of compare the market wasn't their use or not use of a um, of a character it was the fact they did something wildly different from their competitors so i think the underlying point of compare the market success was 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 missed most advertising most marketing messages and even most sales pitches don't try to be particularly unique That's because agencies, bosses, and even board members will look at the competitors and think, they're doing well, we should do something similar. This becomes self-fulfilling, and before you know it, every brand starts to look the same. The industry I love, which seems to be flowing in this direction, is the SaaS industry. So look up companies like Airtable, Slack, Intercom. You'll notice they all seem to be using the same sort of cartoon design in their websites. But the opportunity cost to this replication is really large because we know that standing out is important and that standing out can genuinely have an effect. The irony of that was distinctiveness pays, yet the competitors took the kind of wrong, I think the wrong point uh, out from it. Um, And it is a remarkably consistent finding this 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 kind of under usage of distinctiveness i think i think that the reason it happens is uh, so we said firstly around this assumption that noticeability is a given and therefore start looking at other points the second is the bizarre way in which agencies planners account people try and persuade clients to be distinctive um and martin uh weigel of a Wyden and Kennedy is very good at critiquing this. And I think the, the danger is with the, the norm when we try and persuade people to be distinctives, as we talk about it as being, oh, you know, you need to take a risk as a marketer. You need to be, make these creative leaps. Now that I think is the worst possible argument to marketer to be um, distinctive. You know, why would you want to be taking a huge risk uh, in your job you know your mortgage your uh, finances all depend on a brand being successful the point is the only thing the way we should argue is this is not distinctiveness is not about creativity for creativity's sake it's not about uh, making big bold risky leaps of faith all the evidence 
you know, case studies like compare the market, the psychological evidence like von Restoff, all the evidence points to this is the least risky approach. Now, it doesn't guarantee success, but it stacks the odds in your favor. Uh, the risky thing to do is to be, for the brand at least, the risky thing for the brand is to be um, bland and mimicking its competitive set because you're not likely to be to be noticed. When your brand successfully starts to use distinctive messages, it starts to get noticed. There are a few classic examples of this, one of which is EasyJet. When they entered the low-budget travel market, they were pretty unique. They offered far cheaper prices and a no-frills service. But they didn't just rely on their differentiated service. EasyJet made sure their brand would be noticed with an extremely distinctive colour. Working with a small local design agency, the founder, Stelios, pushed the team to pick a colour that nobody in the industry had used before. Eventually, they came up with a famous shade of orange known as Panatone 021C. No airline in the history of aviation had used a colour like this before, and while there are several reasons behind EasyJet's growth, their brand and colour stood out. It became distinctive, it stuck in consumers' minds and allowed their great deals to be noticed. What's hilarious, though, is how others have actually started to copy their approach. And rather than learning from EasyJet's distinctiveness, some have looked to copy it completely. If you look up Jetstar, you'll see a Kiwi-based low-cost airline, and they've styled their airplanes, their advertising, and even their famous colour scheme on EasyJet, reusing that shade of orange. While those in that company may praise this, thinking it's a smart idea to follow successful competitors, their thinking is flawed. It wasn't the shade of orange that made EasyJet successful, it was their distinctiveness. And copying that only makes your airline less distinct. It's likely that some of you listening to this now are working on a marketing campaign and perhaps you're tempted to use a distinctive approach in your ideas. But it won't necessarily be easy for you to push it through in the company or, or brand you work at as there's a huge risk attached. I'll let Richard explain. The interesting thing when we talk about risk, I think we should talk about risk for, for whom. What is in the best interest of the brand is being distinctive. If you look at the individual motivations of the uh, marketer or the agency potentially, things are a little bit more nuanced because if you deviate from what everyone else has done uh, and then you fail, and there's always a chance any campaign can fail, then as a individual, you are on kind of thin ice because it's hard to then justify what you've done. If you do exactly the same as your competitors, things go wrong, you can turn around and say, well, you know, as a lager, we sponsored football. Of course, it's a sensible football thing. Carling's doing it, Bud's doing it. Foster's, I don't know who else, they're all doing it. Therefore, you know, this, this was a logical approach. So it, copying and mimicking the herd can uh, be a defensive tactic for the individual. And there's that lovely phrase, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. You know, no one ever got fired for doing exactly the same as their competitors. Where I think this becomes interesting then is as a marketer, there is a massive opportunity if you can persuade your, or, or your organization about the merits of social psychology and behavioral science. Because suddenly it allows you to adopt these behaviors. The behaviors about being distinctive looks like the sensible thing to do. 
And therefore, if you're distinctive and it fails, well, people know that you did everything you could. You, you switch the, um, the kind of understanding in the organization so that if you are undistinctive and you fail, then that, you need to make that the risky, risky approach. If you try and do this on your own within an organization, you're taking a risk. What you need to do is get the buy-in of uh, a broad swathe of people. You've got to almost move the organization from this kind of straw man, homo economicus being the, the, the view of the consumer to a more nuanced uh, psych, social psychology informed uh, view of the, the, the audience. And if you do that, suddenly you open up routes and tactics that aren't available to your competitors. And that gives you a massive edge. Textbooks will tell marketers to be unique, but most end up copying or just taking inspiration from competitors to steer clear of risk. And this means that most of us miss out on an opportunity to create really compelling work. To finish up, I'll take a slightly different track and talk about another study Richard referenced around rhyming. In 1999, two psychologists from Lafayette University asked 60 students to rate the comprehensibility and accuracy of 30 memorable sayings. However, the students didn't receive all the same sayings. Each group received a slightly doctored list. Some of the sayings rhymed, while others were tweaked, so they didn't. In both cases, the meaning was the same. The only thing that changed was the rhyme. For example, one group heard that what sobriety conceals alcohol reveals, while the remainder learnt that what sobriety conceals alcohol unmasks. The results were really interesting. The rhyming sayings were rated as being as 22% more accurate than non-rhyming ones. The academics attributed this to the power of rhymes. Essentially, if something rhymed, it's easier to be remembered and more likely to be considered as accurate. The advertising implications for this study are clear. If you want your strap line to be remembered or even believed, rhyming is a powerful tool to help. So you'd think that marketers would be jumping at the chance to use rhyme in their ads, but they don't. Alex Boyd and Richard analysed copies of the Times and Sun newspapers stretching back to 1977. They found that in the last decade, the number of ads with a prominent rhyme has halved. Since 2007, about 4% of print ads have included a rhyme compared to 10% in the previous years. Now, many of us could think that this is down to the fact that rhymes appear to be tacky or perhaps have connotations of being basic or cheap. But I think there's something extra to it as well. I think the fact that none of our competitors are using rhymes, that nobody in these industries are interested in using rhymes in their marketing, essentially convinces other companies not to do it. We look around and we see nobody rhyming. So when we're deciding our campaigns, we don't do it ourselves. Even if there's substantial consumer psychology evidence suggesting that it would be a good idea. Agencies often advise clients to take risks with their advertising. Perhaps we should take that advice to heart and actually try and do something distinct. That's it from me today. If you've enjoyed listening to Richard, I highly recommend uh, giving his book a read, The Choice Factory. It's an up-to-date look at the latest insights from consumer psychology and contains a number of practical ideas that you can use in your marketing. If you're London-based, Richard is also hosting a workshop on the 6th of June where he'll be explaining how to apply behaviour science nudges to marketing. Take a look at the link in the show notes if you'd like to attend that. Anyway, thanks again for listening to this episode of The Nudge. Thank you.